Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi there, Tip Off listeners. Hope you're well. I've got something a bit different for you in this episode. I'm busy lining things up for series four, but in the meantime, I've dipped my toe into the perilous waters of the live podcast world. In early September, I hosted an event for Audible's Spoken Worlds Festival, where I got to speak to the journalists behind the fantastic podcast series, West Cork. Now, it was all something of an experiment, but I really enjoyed hearing how Sam Bungie and Jennifer Ford had managed to make sense of decades worth of rumours and whispers to produce a sensitive exploration what happens when a murder investigation goes wrong. So here's a bit of my conversation with Sam and Jennifer. It was in the big echoey hall at Lincoln's Inn Fields. We went over all the twists and turns that happened to get their story out. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. If you can please put your hands together for Maeve, Jennifer and Sam. Hello. Hi, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> Take a seat, guys. So, welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us in this very spectacular building. Uh, we couldn't be much further, I think, from the wind-blown cliffs of West Cork, but here we are. Okay. Um, with us today, we've got Sam Bungie and Jennifer Ford, who are going to be talking to us about their incredible work. Uh, my name's Maeve McClendigan. I'm an investigative journalist, and I'm the host of a podcast called The Tip-Off, where we look into the stories behind some amazing investigations. And so we're going to start today with that very moment of the tip-off of where this story came from. So take you all back. It's late 2014, and Sam and Jennifer are sat in a London flat, and they picked up a copy of The Observer. And there's an article there with a headline that reads, Britain accused a filmmaker's murder puts Irish police in the dock. And reading on, they couldn't quite believe what it was they were reading. This story focused on one man, a journalist called Ian Bailey. And he's the prime suspect in a brutal murder. But Ian had never been charged. And now he's trying to sue the Irish police for harassment and wrongful arrest. So it sounds like a fascinating story, an unsolved murder case where the police seemed like they just couldn't manage to get their man. So it's enough to whet their appetites, and Sam and Jennifer board a flight, and you fly to Dublin, right? You want to be there when Ian's case comes to trial. So maybe, Jennifer, can you tell us what's going through your head that first day as you walk in the courtroom? 
So it was, I think what was struck us most initially was just how much attention there was on it. It was like a packed courthouse. We got there what we thought was early and all of the seats in the viewing gallery were taken. Um, there were loads of journalists outside taking photographs. And again, we just kind of assumed that there were always you know, photographers outside a courthouse taking mm -hmm. photographs, but they were all there for him. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of throng of men in suits around outside the front of the, inside, but outside the, um, the actual courtroom. Um, so I think that that's what initially kind of struck us. And then Ian mm. is so tall, he kind of stands a foot above everybody else. And weirdly, his legal team are all tiny. <laughs> so he's sort of there looming over them. And at this stage, so obviously there's a trial going on. Could you get close to Ian? Like, was this, were you thinking, you know, if we could just grab him in the corridor, we could start to have these conversations? What was your kind of game plan for how to get to him? Uh, a little, that is what we thought, uh -huh. actually. And um, then realised that it sort of wasn't going to happen. But what happened? You gave him a note or something? It was a case where if you spent enough time there, if you hung out at the forecourts in Dublin, mm -hmm. there's this sort of daily coming... You know, everyone's routines have become quite obvious quite quickly. And, and, and I did go up to him quite soon after we got there and, and tried to talk to him. But he, he at first just kind of put his hand to his lips and said, um, I can't talk to you. No, not nothing, in fact. I think he just walked away. Mm. And then <laughs> we went up to him again, the two yeah. of us, outside of the courtroom and spoke to he and, him and Jules after a day. Yeah, mm. briefly, and said what we were interested in doing. And he said, oh, I haven't... I haven't he said that Sam had worked for this American life in America. Mm. And he said, oh, I haven't... My story's been in England and Ireland, but it hasn't been in America yet. So obviously something, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, appealed to him about sharing his story more widely for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So at this stage, you kind of, you have the inkling that this is a, a really interesting story, something you, you want to dig into. Uh, but you guys are based in, in London, right? So mm -hmm. presumably, you, you know, you realise quite early on you have to go and see this landscape, this area, this small town called Skull in West Cork, where this all happened. Can you remember your very first impressions of, of turning up in Skull? Maybe, Sam, you could tell us a little bit about, you know, the landscape, what that's like there. Skull is sort of the unofficial capital of this part of West Cork. Um, so th there's these, like, three jagged peninsulas at the... At, at, um, it's, uh, north is Kerry, and, and this part of West Cork is sort of all jutting out in the Atlantic. And, and Skull is like a seaside community, um, like a fishing, fishing town, officially, but it, it's, it's kind of seasonal, and there's a big influx of tourists in the summer, and it's very bustling, and, and um, you know, there's a food market and so on. But then in the winter, it's, it's quite a different place, you know, so like many seasonal places. And it's still, you know, lively in the daytime, but at night, which is when we first arrived there, it's, you know, like crickets, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you come in and the police station's there, lights off, and as, as you go west, it becomes uh, quieter and quieter. And between the little villages, there's very little at all, you know, and it's, it can be mountainous because there's a, there's a mountain there and then um, you get to the coast very quickly and it's, it's, it's really beautiful, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but quite um, rugged. Mm. Yeah. 
And so the reason all of this was happening, the reason you were out there is because way out in that rugged countryside, back in 1996, a woman had been murdered. A woman called Sophie Toscan de Plantier, who was French, but she often frequented a holiday home in Skull or just outside it. And Sophie was found one morning outside her holiday home in her nightdress, but with her boots laced up on her feet, and her head and face had been bludgeoned. Beside her body on the ground was a bloodied rock and a piece of slate. Now, this was a horrifically violent murder, and I think it's really important to remember that you know, around all of this compelling storytelling, there's a real woman with a real family at the heart of all of this who suffered a really horrible crime. Jennifer, maybe you can tell us a bit about, you know, these kind of true crime stories can be complicated, right? Not just factually, but ethically as well. Uh, and this, you know, involves a death of, a, of an innocent woman. So what kind of things were you considering when you were kind of first thinking about whether this was something to dig into? Mm. Um, all sorts of questions about those particular issues. I mean, I think first we felt that we probably wouldn't have done it if, that we wouldn't do it if Sophie's family weren't on board with it or if they didn't want us to do it because it didn't really feel like we had the right to go poking around in this story without their permission. Um, but they have a really sort of organised group of people around them in Paris that are all kind of fighting to keep the case alive and to keep um, sort of momentum moving towards justice, whatever that looks like. I mean, to them, it looks like Ian Bailey behind bars. But um, either way, just towards some resolution. So I think as soon as we knew that this was very much a live story, you know, it hasn't gone away. It's not a case of kind of, um, you know, digging things up where people would much rather you just didn't talk about them. In fact, everybody was very ready to talk and um, they really wanted to talk just in the right way. So, um, so that was important for us to get them, you know, just involved. And we went to Paris and met uh, met them and you know they were very considered and they sort of wanted to had all sorts of questions but ultimately were uh, you know were into it so um, and then in terms of actually telling the story I think it's a really uh, I'm sure it happens with all sorts of murders but we do have you know a kind of a lot of stories about murdered women, you know, fiction, non-fiction. Um, so how to tell it in the right way, so how to kind of strike a balance between it being having enough information where the listener feels like they're getting those bits that, um, that they can start coming up with theories themselves, mm. but then also being respectful mm. to the victim and kind of being mindful of not sort of fetishizing the female victim. And I think that it was important that our balance, we thought that, you know, people should know as much about Sophie and how, as much about how Sophie died as who she was when she was alive and, you know, trying to kind of have her as a person um, in there, even kind of before, that was kind of partly the reason why we structured it the way we structured it, that you know Sophie, who she is, before you know Ian as a suspect, because once he's in the picture, it's really hard for him not to sort of dominate it. But at this stage, there's lots of ways you could tell this story, right? It could be a, a kind of documentary, it mm -hmm. could be a, a documentary film, it could be another series of articles. So at this stage, were you quite clear that it was going to be a podcast and it was going to be a podcast series? What, when did that kind of crystallise in your minds as that was going to be the medium? I think always uh -huh. we wanted to 
do it as a podcast. Yeah, that because you know it felt halfway between what we do. You know, Sam's a journalist, and I'm a documentary producer, so it felt like it was a middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think we were excited about the. Um, the way that podcasting allows you to tell a story, you know, that um, you can go off on tangents and you can go into detail and you can also just be much more uh, low-key than um, having a film crew with you. I mean, we couldn't have... I don't think you could have made this Mm. as a documentary. I mean, I think maybe... The cost as well. The cost of it, yeah, and just the imposition of it, you know, Mm. the kind of going into people's homes and scheduling a crew and even if we've just been filming ourselves it's just much more um you know it's less intense you know just a little microphone on the table it's much more discreet and I think probably helped us a great deal to get access so I think we knew that that would be a strength in terms of getting access and but so you have this sense at this point that there's all these kind of different narratives there's all these different viewpoints where you know if if for the rest of us that, that haven't done this investigation, where on earth do you start with that? You've kind of got Sophie's family on board. You've got Ian signifying that he's going to be up for talking, but presumably you know you need to talk to dozens more people. You know, do you sit down and make a kind of wish, wish list? What, what is your plan? Do you get out the phone directory for Skull and literally work your way through? How is it that you kind of scope out who it is you're going to talk to? Yeah, we all we of that. Yeah. yeah, all of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Easy, tick. yeah, <laughs> exactly. All yeah, of that. but also actually, we should like we definitely didn't have ambitions on that scale at the beginning. I guess we sort of mm-hmm. obviously hoped that we would be able to speak to everyone, but but we were give. I don't know how much we gave ourselves the impression, but we were also sort of told that that, that by um, various people that. You know, it's going to be a difficult thing to get get people to talk about, mm-hmm. which sort of makes common sense. But um, we thought that, I think initially we thought if we had the, the access to the suspect um, in, in Ian Bailey and to Sophie's family, mm-hmm. that even that felt like initially mm-hmm. enough because there was this 20 years of, of case history. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think then really what, I mean... It, terms of figuring out how big it was going to be and what shape it would take, then Audible, uh, we heard, were looking for 13 parts, for stories that could be 13 parts. And so then you kind of have to think about it differently because I think initially we were thinking like maybe three episodes and it would be three different people and three different perspectives of the case or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we had all sorts of ideas like how, what kind of a podcast it could be but suddenly when it has to be 13 episodes then you think well it then it just evolved into telling the story chronologically and getting as many people involved as we could mm-hmm. yeah I mean one of the extraordinary things I think that anyone that's listened to the podcast will agree with is this incredible access to Ian who's the man at the center of this whole story so to for those of you that don't know, um, so Ian Bailey was a journalist in England uh, before he packed that all in and moved to West Cork. And there he was working as a freelance journalist, writing the odd piece here and there about town fairs or other village events. But it was, it was quiet stuff. It was hardly the kind of thing that was going to make his name and bring him fame and fortune as a journalist. So when Sophie was murdered, Ian was all over the story. And it was, you know, it was after all the biggest news event, I guess, that had happened in in Skull for a long time. 
But pretty soon after the murder, Ian was on the police's radar because some of the stories he was filing seemed to have details that an outsider really shouldn't know. And his alibi for the night was that he'd been at home with his wife, Jules. But she was asleep for most of the night, and the police reasoned it wasn't impossible that he could have walked or driven over to Sophie's and got back in time. And then there were these unusual scratches and a wound on his head that no one had noticed the day before. And Ian said these came from cutting down a tree and killing a turkey for Christmas, but the police seemed highly suspicious. So maybe we can listen to a clip from the show. And this is the moment when, after the murders happened, and Ian is realising that the police are starting to look at him strangely. Ian spent Christmas in a frenzy at the typewriter. He wrote half a dozen stories about the murder over those first few days. The day after Christmas, he came up for air and left the cottage. I'd gone into town uh, on, 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 I think, what, what, early in the morning to get some messages, some briquettes and milk, and then I noticed I was being observed then by two officers. I knew one of them uh, was a member of Ngadish Khanna. I didn't know the other. I guessed he was. The two officers both filed statements about this incident. They were in the newsagents, a small corner shop in Skull, when Ian walked in. He drew attention to himself by barging his way to the counter. One of them wrote in a statement that Ian was unbelievably pale. He was unshaven and his hair was in disarray. To me, he was acting in a very unusual manner. Ian was wearing long sleeves, so the guards could only see as far as his wrists. But both guards were struck by what they saw on his hands. Well, I mean, just to, uh, scratches on the back of my hands, I did have light um, markings. They, they weren't blood scratches. They were... Um, I, they're hard to describe. The guards followed Ian out of the shop. In their statements, they described this curious scene, watching Ian look back over his shoulder at them as he walked away, and then turn off the main street, only to poke his head back around the corner moments later, as if to check they were still watching. So who is this man? Is he a cold-blooded killer or is he simply a strange outsider that's been scapegoated for a violent crime? So you guys had talked to Ian, obviously, in court and he kind of had sounded like he was interested in this. But maybe you could talk us through, you know, really getting him on board because it's going to take a lot of commitment, I guess, from him uh, in this project to keep going. What, how, how was it that you presented the idea to him? Um, we wrote him a letter, right, from London. That's right, yeah. So we wrote him a, So after speaking to him at court, and he, he was basically said, uh, interesting, that I've never had any kind of coverage of my case in, in, in the US or in the UK. Um, but can't speak to you because this case is happening, um, if I would speak to you at all. Um, but then... Uh, the case kind of wore on for, for months, and we, we sent him a letter back, back in London, just sort of pleading our case, and um, got a call from him, like, sort of within two days, sort of the magic of the old-fashioned mail. He got it and, and, and called <laughs> us back straight away and said, yeah, there's a, you know, the evidence has been heard, so there's a break in the case at the moment to come out and um, mm -hmm. meet, meet, up, meet me. And so we got there late one evening in the middle of the week, and, and uh, he... He, we, did, we wanted to kind of go out and meet him the following morning, I think, at his house, because we were aware that Skull was a small town, but he wanted to meet us that evening at a pub right in the middle of town mm -hmm. called The Black Sheep. Um, and so we met him there, and 
he was quite standoffish at, at the start and was sort of saying, I don't know how I can help you and I'm not sure what, what, what your plan is. But he was, I mean, there was a kind of, you know, the empty pub and you're speaking to the man behind the bar about him, right? And That's right, yeah. And he walked in and <laughs> he's um, kind of wearing this, like, massive... I mean, it's like a scene in the film. It's this, like, quiet bar. And he walked in this massive, like head-to-toe raincoat with a big deer stalker hat and then said what to the man have you got any of that pie left I mean pudding, the whole thing yeah. there's only pudding left in the kitchen and <laughs> but it was it was a really <laughs> awkward um scene actually because I yeah, we were speaking to the only person in the bar which was the barman mm -hmm. about he said are you waiting for someone because um uh, there was sort of no other reason to be there and he and I was just saying about to say his name as he walked in, yeah. and sort of in the shock of the moment, I kind of blurted out, speak of the devil, which is <laughs> oh, <yeah>. not... <laughs> Good start. Yeah. And then kind he just him up. filled it, yeah, and then he was like, have, have you got any more of that delicious pudding? Um, um, a sort of strange shift seemed to happen, as I remember in the conversation, we were going from us speaking to, to the suspect in the case, to, to him sort of taking on a role that he used to take on mm. professionally, which is sort of as like a fixer or something. Mm. You know, so then he was suggesting mm. how we might spend our like uh, few days there and, and quickly suggested that he should take us out mm. to the um, scene of the crime to show us where it is. Now you can see it's pretty isolated. Yeah, now my, my, my thinking always was you would never stumble across this place in a in the month of Sundays. It seems pretty clear to me that the only way you would finish up or could finish up up here is if you knew, knew the terrain and you knew the place. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. He seems to revel in publicity, right? Did you guys get a sense of what his motivations were for doing this? Somebody who's just kind of sued the police for this and, and seems to have a quite love-hate relationship with the way the press have covered his story in the past. Why did he agree to, to do it with you guys? You just don't know what's... It's, he's so hard to know what is going on in his head. Because I think on that trip or in another trip, certainly early on, we're kind of walking down the high street in Skull and it's absolutely lashing rain. And again, he has this enormous coat on. But he's carrying a massive book of, like, you know, anthology of serial killers. And he'd picked it up from the charity shop. But it's like, Ian, like... I, Get a bag or <laughs> put it under your coat. Just like you just wonder, like, is that is he rubbing it in people's faces? Because the idea that he he can't not make a connection between like the way everybody sees him and then walking down the road with like a book about serial killers. It's just you know, he's you wonder, but who who knows? Like on the one hand, it's totally fair enough that he should want to have you know, get his side of the story out there. But on the other hand, it's hard not to wonder, is he kind of playing with you and playing with the people around him? And he'd been keeping his own kind of meticulous records throughout the years, right? He'd been taping himself, um, you know, talking to himself, going over the, the records of the case. Um, you know, maybe you guys could explain a little bit what his argument was for, you know, his innocence, why things had... had you know, what, what had gone wrong in the case that, in his mind that led him to be unfairly um, represented? Well, there's no case against him, really. I mean, it's all just stuff that kind of looks bad. And if you add it all up together, um, people think it looks very bad. Um, but really, there's nothing, nothing concrete. Um, but it's kind of, it's all that sort of circumstantial, suspicious stuff and then him, you know, the as way, a... The way he... Yeah, as a kind the of way he is, the way he behaved before the murder, the way he behaved after the murder in the face of the accusation, the way he behaved towards his wife or to his partner, Jules. Like, there's just... People didn't like him, and he was just a really good fit for this. There's not a scintilla of forensic evidence against Ian, and he's provided uh, blood samples, he's... You know, they've taken clothes, they've taken fingerprints and hair samples, and, you know, this was a bloody murder. Um, there would be some trace of him, there isn't. But, but there was one element, right, that did kind of swing things against Ian for a while, and that was the testimony of Marie Farrell. Mm. Um, so Marie was a key witness in the uh, police's case. She'd been out on the night of the murder. She'd been driving in a car with a former lover, and she was married. So it took her a while to kind of come forward and to, to kind of really tell what had happened. But eventually she said that on this drive, while she was out there, she saw this man walking along the country road somewhere near where Sophie lived. And when it the guard had finally got to her, she presented this statement. And what she said finally was pretty damning for Ian. Uh, those of you who followed the case closely will remember that Marie Farrell was the shopkeeper whose testimony was a key factor in the outcome of the case. And Marie Farrell joins me now on the line. Marie, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Uh, you actually saw Ian Bailey a mile from Sophie's home the night she was murdered. I did, yes. And what exactly did you see? 
Um, I was driving home after being out for the evening and um, um, I just uh, picked up this man in the headlights of my car staggering along the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just appeared to be drunk. Um, he was staggering and sort of waving his hands around. Everybody knows now what you saw yeah, because you've yeah. sworn in court as to what you saw. Marie's first statement described a man who, frankly, didn't sound much like Ian at all. Medium height, slim and tanned. But as her statements progressed, like in a flipbook animation, the man in the black coat morphed into someone who looked just like the guard's prime suspect. Tall, powerfully built, pale and unshaven. So you know Marie Farrell, she's this key piece of the puzzle. She's either the sole witness to this uh, suspect out on the hills that night, or she's someone who's thrown the whole case off balance. So how do you go about finding her, and how do you get her to talk to you? So she, we kind of danced around for ages because we didn't know where she was. We knew she wasn't in Skull anymore. And we asked Ian's lawyer if he would put us in touch with her. And he said yes, he would... um, get in touch and ask her if she was happy to talk. And then sort of months went by and we had no idea whether he had actually called her or said, he told us he did, but um, you kind of take his word for it. And then, but there was certainly no word back on, you know, he said he hadn't heard. And so then eventually just found her, you found her on social media, someone mm-hmm. who, I mean, looked like a cat on social media, but on Facebook, had the right on name on Facebook. Uh-huh. And so, um, and messaged, and again, it's one of those messages you just kind of fire off, and a couple of months later, got a message back. And it was like a really kind of, hi, Sam, I'm away at the moment, here's my number, Um, I'll talk to you next week, or something like that. Really straightforward. Yeah. You find her, and she, do the interview, and she tells you some quite extraordinary things. We'll just play a, a short clip of that. Well, I know it wasn't Ian Bailey I saw on the road, but I don't know who killed Sophie. Over three days, we sat with Marie in her front living room, trying to understand how someone gets themselves into this kind of a pickle. If I'd never made that phone call on Christmas Day, life would be different. If only I didn't go to court that day, if only I didn't go out that night, if only I didn't ring the guards. Life would be different, so different. It must be quite extraordinary to be sat in the, the living room with her and her telling you these incredible things. This took years of reporting, right? And, and at the end of it, you must have had weeks, if not months' worth of, of tape and stories and hundreds of different characters. How did you keep that all organised? And where do you start when you come to write up the script for that? Mm. Well, Endless whiteboards and post-it notes. and Yeah, we, had, we sort of travelled with these two um, uh, you know, whiteboards that you could erase, stick and stick in the car or whatever and we did um we had we used trint this this sort of automate automated um transcription thing because like you say we had sort of dozens of hours just with um ian and and um, um hundreds of like little pieces of white paper that you'd then find under the sofa <laughs> yeah. and be like, why? You know, you'd think you'd done that episode and you'd see this, like, nugget that you now have to kind of jam in somewhere because actually it's really important totally, and you'd yeah. lost the piece, you know, it, it somehow got blown off the whiteboard or whatever. And then, when so. we, yeah, while we were in West Cork, which we spent a, we spent a lot of time there, um, we, would, we would kind of have to hop around places to stay. And so we'd be, like, carting these things around... Um, 
and that's when we had everything pinned up. And also, whenever we left the house, we were really, um, you know, conscious, paranoid, I guess, about making sure that everything, all our workings were like um, not visible in like case. Set up an investigating room and then kind of de whatever, like, uh, you know, kind of take yeah, it all down again. Break it down. <laughs> Close the curtains so that people who we imagine peering in the window and trying to like <laughs> see what we were up to wouldn't see these big whiteboards with all like their names on them. I mean, it was re- way over the Yeah, top, it's, it's a small place. But like that was, I, th- I think a lot of that it's was really easy mind. to yeah scare yourself. Yeah, it's like the wire on the move constantly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and not even just people, you know, the, the locals, the neighbours peering in the windows. But you know, for myself, having done long-term investigative projects, it, there's always this kind of fear in the back of your mind that you know, what if you got scooped at any minute? What if somebody, um. you know, somebody else breaks this story or there's a big change in the case that means you can't report it was that something that was you were nervous about or was there a moment when you realized you're so out ahead of the rest of the game that it's yours now well I don't I don't think it was a case of like worrying about being uh, ahead of the game because it was something that like it was you know it was in the papers basically every day mm. more you know certainly for big chunks of time that we were doing it in, in Ireland because it's just a case that like drips along mm-hmm. and so people are fo- like it and journalists who followed it from the beginning are still doing that and we're doing it at the time but it was more like we got to a stage I think in the in the process of re- researching it and interviewing people that it felt like to do what we were doing we're trying to do takes that amount of time and so like we would be finished before anyone else then started so mm-hmm. um yeah, I, I don't know. It, uh, yeah, we didn't spend that much time thinking about that, I think. Yeah. And so you have this mad scramble of, of kind of pulling this together from something that you were wondering how you were possibly going to stretch it into a three-episode series to suddenly having too much, I guess, to fit even to even 13 episodes. Mm. And then finally gets released in February. Um, what's the reaction been like, you know, particularly, I guess, from, from Ian and from Sophie's family? Good, yeah. I mean, we were really worried about that obviously we sent Sophie's family um a copy of it earlier copy of it um even though we were making changes up to like three days before it went out but we sent Sophie's family just in case you know there was anything that they were upset by or you know whatever but they were happy with it and then Ian we didn't hear from right for we had a we had to get him a because he you know does not doesn't have the internet at home and isn't um, a member of Amazon or Audible but we felt like we needed to get him a copy because um, uh, it would be unfair for people to have listened to it and he and didn't. Getting calls. And, yeah. So my cousin lives in one town over and we got him to put it on CDs but then he said he'd drop it up to him we were like what if he hates it is he going to go after my cousin so we need to try and figure out a way so we told him we're going to leave it at the post office it'll be under your name so Brian went I mean it was just again so stealth but um, that was the day you know, of, of the release it was the day of the release on the day of the release there was an, a, um, an envelope marked Ian Bailey at the post office which he went down and collected and then we didn't hear from him and then about a month later, um, we got phone, a phone call and like a few missed calls and ran through all before calling him back. Did loads of rehearsed answers like, okay, if he says this, this is what we say. If he hates this bit, if he hates... Like all of the things we imagined he would hate ran through what our answers would be. And then uh, Sam rang him back and 
episode two was blaring in the background in his kitchen, and it was his own second round. And he was, I mean, he liked, he liked it, I think. He, he was doing of, impressions of some of the characters in the thing. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. I think since he's like calibrate, I think now he's kind of listened to the bits that um, he's kind of different bits probably loom out at him than they did initially. I think initially he was kind of into how balanced it was and how much he was in it and all of that stuff. But he said that he picked out a couple of lines being unnecessary, the bits from his, the, his old life in the UK. He kind of picked out some of those details as he thought they were a bit unnecessary. Um, like the bit about him crying on the bed and whatever, but, you know, fair enough. But he's, it's interesting because since, I mean, we've been back and um, he's changed um, and it's like he heard the podcast and really kind of studied how he's portrayed in it and is now making a conscious decision not to be that man. So he goes out to bars all the, all the time and just kind of doesn't acknowledge. So when we were trying to talk to him again and say, what about that, um, you know, because you don't know, what are you talking about? Who, what people? What people think I did this? Nobody thinks I did it. And you're just like, oh, my God. It's just like you couldn't, it would be really hard to do it now. He's completely mm. changed. And I don't know if you remember the whole thing about the moon stick, the mm. stick that we go on for ages. And he, we went round and round it with him because loads of people, um, obviously, and we you know, put tape of them in the series of them talking and describing the stick. And then he absolutely is kind of so flippant about it. And like, what stick? I don't understand. Is it a, what, what is a moon stick? And makes a kind of joke about it. And then when we were there, we were with a photographer who said, um, maybe we could get you out in the landscape, like walking somewhere. Like if you've got a, you know, and he kind of misremembered it and just said, what about that's the stick? And he went, yeah, I'll just go and get it. <laughs> and went into his shed <laughs> and brought uh, out a massive star. A moon stick. And Sam and I were standing there going, is he doing this? Like, is that the moon stick, Ian? <laughs> and he just like absolutely, like I don't know, just constantly shifting things, and you don't know why he's doing it. So yeah, it's so now he might put his book about serial killers inside a bag when he walks down the road. Maybe he's yeah, that. but <laughs> exactly. resurrect the moon stick. I mean, I'm who sure, knows? bring that back. Sure. Yeah, it's very strange. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's an absolutely fantastic series. I think everyone can agree. It's sensitively explored. It's incredibly deeply researched. And it's a, a really fascinating story. That's all for this episode of The Tip Off. Thanks to Sam Bungie and Jennifer Ford for talking to me. You can listen to West Cork on Audible. I'd really recommend it. Our theme music is by Dice Muse. And clips from West Cork are used thanks to Audible. Do stay tuned to Tip Off for more stories behind the headlines. And if you have a second, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or tweet us at Tip Off Podcast. Thanks. See you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.